Morning, church. Good to see everybody here. Love that, that last song we closed with. I just thought I would, that must have been introduced while I was away in the last weekend in Florida. But John opens his gospel saying, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen? The word was and is. We're thankful for who Christ is. If you're a guest, uh, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor here. Let's start with um, the very practical, all right? If you parked in our lot, you noticed there were no stripes. I hope you noticed there were no stripes this morning. Make sure you move your car when, uh, when, you are, um, when service is done. Sometimes people will leave their car in the lot and go for lunch. I wouldn't do that. They're coming to stripe the lot, which they didn't get done yesterday, and I'd hate for your car to get striped, all right? Yeah. All right, let's begin with our learning time with the question, all right? Here's the question. How is your conscience? Some of you may be thinking, well, Kelly, define conscience, all right? That's fair. Uh, our conscience is that inner sense, right? The natural apprehension, what some would refer to as intuition that helps us distinguish right from wrong and then hopefully select what is right. Scripture teaches that we all have a conscience. Every person is hardwired. We're designed by God with the capacity to collect assess information, and make moral decisions. Philosophers re refer to this capacity as a part of what is the natural law. It's natural in the sense that every person's born with the capacity. It's lawful in the sense that we're able to intuit. We're able to distinguish right from wrong and hopefully increasingly select what's right. Admittedly, we may not agree not everybody agrees on what's in right and wrong, but we're all born with this inner sense, this proclivity to assess, declare, and then affirm what's right. The conscience exists, and this is evidenced in the fact that all cultures throughout all times have had a law. And most affirm things like murder, it's wrong, sixth commandment, adultery, it's wrong, seventh commandment, stealing, it's wrong, eighth commandment, lying, it's wrong, ninth commandment, most all cultures throughout all times have affirmed these types of laws to one degree or another. The Apostle Paul alludes to the presence of a conscience when he describes God's just judgment against our contravening what's obvious and true. He wrote, even Gentiles, that is, non-Jews, who do not have God's written law, that was what was delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai, show that they know his law, nonetheless, when they instinctively obey it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts, this interior sense, for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. How's your conscience? In the Pinocchio movie, the famous wooden puppet was told, well, let your conscience be your guide. Do you remember the story? The carpenter Geppetto 
longed to have a son and hoped that this wooden puppet with the strings would become a boy, a real human. Think with me now. The wooden maker slash creator hoped that the wooden puppet would be able to shed his strings and become alive, become fully human, the son that he had never have had. For that to happen, though, Pinocchio had to learn to make good decisions. To become a real boy, to shed his strings, he had to learn to be brave and truthful and unselfish. And the story is all about his quest to become human, which involved encounters with all types of unsavory characters who tempted him and led him astray. And, as I'm sure everyone remembers, he famously was confronted by his own flesh. His nose would grow longer and longer every time he made a poor decision. Thankfully, he's given a helper, Jiminy the Cricket, a friendly little companion who was to serve as Pinocchio's conscience until Pinocchio could develop his own sense of conscience, helping the wooden puppet navigate all that he faced in the world. That was Jiminy the Cricket's job. Together, the puppet and the cricket had some bumps, but Pinocchio did become a real boy in the end. He became brave and truthful and unselfish. It's a fascinating story. Undoubtedly, it's what many believe is needed to come alive. What do we believe is needed to be fully us? To come alive. This afternoon, in the weeks to come, how will you be fully human? Many believe we simply need to make good decisions. Of course, the problem is being brave and telling the truth and living unselfishly is an ongoing struggle in life. It's not just a children's tale. It's not something we faith face only as little kids, but something we have to navigate day in and day out. Sometimes we make good decisions, sometimes we make poor decisions, sometimes we're cowardly, and we're dishonest, and we're selfish, and our consciences in those situations accuse us, don't they? As a result, those who buy into the Pinocchio worldview have to do some complex math. And I wonder if you make these types of calculations. Those that buy into the Pinocchio worldview, they, they end up doing very complex math. When asked the simple question, how's your conscience, they begin adding and subtracting. They have to weigh every good decision they've ever made against every bad decision they've ever made and again, it's complex. If I'm selfish and lie to my spouse, the person who's closest to me in life and whom I've made a covenant with, but I'm honest and selfless at work with my, let's say, my five coworkers, how does being honest and selfless with five coworkers weigh up and against being dishonest and selfish with my spouse? Five to one, I don't know. And you see the math that's involved here. And it's not only the quantity of people impacted by my decisions, it's the 
quality of the decisions I'm making. Herein, we, we make up terms to distinguish quality, like white lies. Those are the supposedly lesser lies that don't separate us as much from the people we love and care for. And then there are greater and grander lies that do more damage. You see how complex the math is when ask a relatively simple question if you have the Pinocchio worldview? In a gathering this size, some of us are living exhausted and probably crushed as our consciences accuse us. And we do this complex math constantly because we're keenly aware of cowardice-ness. Is that a word? Cowardice? Selfishness, dishonesty in our lives. We've done the math. We know we'll never be able to do enough good to tip the scale over historic poor decisions and the guilt and the shame associated with those decisions drive us. As a result, we often feel subhuman. Remember the Pinocchio quest to become fully human to become a little boy, to shed those strings and to be connected with his creator, to be the son to the father. We often feel subhuman because of the guilt and the shame. And to make matters worse, we're keenly aware of the future. We know enough about the world and we'll make poor decisions in the future, and so we feel or can feel fairly hopeless in the Pinocchio worldview. What is the hope for those whose consciences accuse them? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. We're making our way through the book, New Testament book written to a a Jewish community. Follow along as I read the glorious, I mean glorious news of the gospel. If you have a pen or pencil, there'll be a word that I want to encourage you to circle and some stuff to underline. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now the first covenant, he's talking about the covenant through Moses, the covenant of the law, the covenant that the Jewish community was observing. It had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary, a gathering spot. For the people of God, where the presence of God would condescend. A tabernacle, verse 2, was set up. That was the sanctuary. In its first room were the lampstand. It's a fairly elementary design. I'll have the picture in a little while for you here. In the first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, basically two rooms in the tabernacle and only two rooms. In the Most Holy Place had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. The Ark contained some stuff. The Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Moses came down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments written on stone. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, the mercy seat it became known as, where the priests sprinkled the blood to atone for sin. 
But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Verse 6, when everything had been arranged like this, outer room, inner room, and the furniture all in its place, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. Verse 9, this is an illustration, this setup, this tabernacle, this sacrificial system. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not I'd circle not. It's circled in my notes. We're not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Let me read it again. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered in that system, the first covenant system, the tabernacle, later the temple system, were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations outside of us applying until the time of the new order. All right, we'll pause there for just a minute. Under the first covenant, the Israelites were given instructions to build a tabernacle in the wilderness while they were traveling to the promised land out of Egyptian slavery. Later, a temple in Jerusalem was built after settling in the promised land. And the structures were basically the same, outer room, inner room, fairly elementary designs. The purpose of both these structures were to provide a space where God's presence would condescend and dwell among his people. This has always been the longing of God to dwell among us. The Garden of Eden was a place, it was a sacred space where God dwelled among us. The tabernacle in the wilderness, the temple in Jerusalem, and then the body. Emmanuel, Christ himself comes. Physically, the word is with us. The word dwelled among us. Christ came in the flesh he dwells among us. Then he gives his spirit at Pentecost. We are now the sacred space. Those who, have trust in, who are trusting in Christ. God longed to dwell among us. In this way, the first covenant, the author says, was an illustration of things to come in the new order. We live in the new order. Both the tabernacle and the temple had a simplistic and purposeful design. There's a picture on the screen of the tabernacle. The outer room is on the right, the inner room on the left, the pieces of furniture present there. It was just a, an elaborate tent that they would travel around the wilderness, set it up for a while, tear it down as the Spirit led them on to the next place. The outer room was called the holy place. The priests were there daily ministering, lighting the menorah, the lampstand, trading out the, the bread, the sacred bread, the bread of presence. Then the interior room, the most holy place between, with a very thick curtain. This is a, a double image. The tabernacles below, the temple that Solomon built above. It just shows that the structures were basically the same. Outer room, inner room, thick curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place. Most holy place had the Ark of the Covenant with those uh, elements in the Ark. The priest would go in there once a year. 
to apply blood to the mercy seat, which was the top of the Ark of the Covenant, to atone for the sins of the nation so that the presence of God could condescend, could come down and dwell among his people. For God's presence to dwell in these sacred spaces, the space itself and everyone in them had to be cleansed. And the means for cleansing was blood. Verse 7, only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that had been committed in ignorance. Note, all right, so here, note, it was not good deeds that brought cleansing. Let that wash over us. It was not the good deeds of the people. In fact, uh, it was actually the bad deeds of the people that needed cleansing. It was not the good deeds of the people, which means the writer of the Pinocchio story has it wrong. The Pinocchio story teaches children, and I'm afraid many adults live based on the story, that they must learn to behave if they're going to come alive. If you're going to be fully human and be united with your creator as Pinocchio was united with Geppetto, But that's not the message of Scripture. That's not the biblical worldview. That's the message of humanism, calling us to self-reliance. The message of the Bible is much, much better, different, glorious. The story of the Bible is about dependence upon God's provision of blood, not dependence upon our own moral efforts in order to be reunited with our creator. Later, in the same chapter, Hebrews 9.22, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. If your conscience accuses you this morning, your good behavior is not going to make that stop. You're not going to be out, because you're not going to be able to outpace your bad behavior. Shed blood is what we need. And I realize that in our day, blood is perceived as gross. We need to to shift. We need to see it as glorious. We live in a world of delicate sensibilities and sterile fields. We use antibacterial soap, and we buy meat that's neatly packaged in saran wrap at the grocery store. Most of us would be vegetarians if we knew what it involved to get the meat there. Why is blood the currency of forgiveness? Moses explains in the Old Testament book of Leviticus that the life of a creature is in its blood. And that God had given blood to humanity in order to make atonement for sin. In other words, it's through blood that we experience forgiveness. Blood itself possesses life. Of course, this is true scientifically. We know it scientifically. Moses is writing in Leviticus saying it's spiritually true as well. In fact, my suspicion is that God in his brilliance created the human body to illustrate our spiritual need for blood. After all, God could have created our bodies in any number of ways and left out blood altogether. 
Blood did not have to be a part of our bodily experience. I'm finite in my understanding, but I'm assuming God could have figured something else out. But in his sovereignty, what we scientifically understand about the necessity of blood for life is also a spiritual reality. Life is in the blood. Life is not in my morality. This means that the takeaway from the story of Scripture is not try harder. It is depend more. Doesn't that feel good? That feels really good. I see some of your faces. Let the grace of God just wash over you. The Pinocchio story is a lie. This means that the takeaway from the story of Scripture is not ever, it's never, try harder to do what's right in order to cleanse your conscience. It's rather depend. It's depend solely, depend totally on the blood provision of God in Christ so that you can experience the cleansing of your conscience, the forgiveness of sin, and the empowerment to honor him with your life. Now let's make sure we understand it's not that our behavior doesn't matter to God. Our behavior matters. Frankly, because of Jesus' shed blood, our behavior matters more than ever. (laughs) And God would much rather we be brave and honest and selfless than that we would be cowardly and dishonest and selfish. So Pinocchio's efforts are admirable. They're just not sufficient to cleanse the conscience of humanity, his own or other people's. So the question's not whether good behavior matters. That's not the question. The question is, how is your conscience? And how will it be cleansed? The corresponding follow-up is then what motivates our morality, the guilt of a growing nose, gosh, I hope that's not what motivates your morality. And the the growing nose is the shame of everybody sees my, my immorality. That's the guilt of a growing nose. Many of us live the suburban secrets where I hope no one sees my growing nose. I, I hope I can keep my sin a secret, but nothing is hidden from God, thankfully. And he's seen us in our sinfulness, and he sent a sacrifice sufficient to cleanse our conscience so that we no longer have to live secret pretending that our noses aren't in fact growing. In fact, when our noses grow because we are immoral, we can praise God that he's provided Christ, a grace sufficient. And so what motivates us to live God-honoring lives? It is his grace. Titus 2.12. Scripture teaches it's God's grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. We do not empower ourselves. There is not enough fear in the world to motivate us to be able to cleanse our conscience. It's grace It's the love of God that brings us to repentance. It's Romans 2, 14, I think. The love of God brings us to repentance. 
God's mercy teaches us how beautiful it is to honor him with our lives. All right, now while the shed blood of animals was required under the first covenant, interestingly, we learned today that it was not actually effective in cleansing the conscience. By that, we mean it didn't change the status of the worshiper, moving them from guilty to innocent. You could say that the blood offered in the first covenant cleansed the worshiper so that the presence and cleansed the worship space so that the presence of God could condescend, could be among his people. That was an outward cleansing. It didn't touch the interior of the person. These sacrifices under the first covenant were what theologians would call efficacious. They were effective in accomplishing the purpose for which they had been given, that is, this outward cleansing so that the presence of God could come. But they didn't touch the inner side of man. They didn't change the interior of the person. That's why sacrifices had to be made day in and day out. The tabernacle and the temple, they were a bloodletting. Israelites continued to sin, so sacrifices had to be continually offered. So what was the purpose, you might ask, of the sacrifices? The author of Hebrews explains to give an illustration. An illustration of what? Of our dire situation. Our need for a perfect human sacrifice to cleanse the human conscience. The stain of sin on the interior portion of humanity is a human problem that no blood of animals would ever touch. So we needed a perfect human sacrifice, the blood of a morally perfect human to cleanse the human conscience. The author wrote that the sacrifices were only a matter of external regulations until this new order came. Praise God, we live in the new order, under the second covenant, the Apostle Paul describes the Old Testament law as a tutor, teaching us, instructing us of our deep need for God's sacrifice on our behalf, daily, annual, animal sacrifices, not able to touch my heart, your heart, our hearts. Enter Jesus, verse 11. But, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, that is, animals, but he entered the most holy place, that interior room, once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are, I would circle, outwardly, outwardly clean. How much more? Then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God.
How can we live more joy-filled and peaceful lives? How can we escape the guilt and the shame of our consciences accusing us? Here's my suggestion. (laughs) It's a long takeaway. Ready? Throw off the burden of performance-based conscience cleansing and the shame that accompanies sinful acts that lead to death by receiving. The grace-based conscience cleansing offered through faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Throw off the Pinocchio story and celebrate the good news of the gospel. Move from seeing the blood as gross to glorious. It's better than just okay news. It's truly, truly good news. Performance-based worldviews will only motivate us for so long. And honestly, most suburbanites need a deliverance from the Pinocchio worldview. In fact, one of the best ways to tell if you need a deliverance from the Pinocchio worldview, a performance-based worldview, is to measure your level of anger, shame, fear, anxiety, all of which are often byproducts of believing that God expects us to somehow demonstrate our self-worth through good behavior. If you are plagued by one of these or all of these, it may be an indication that you're on the treadmill of works-based righteousness and exhausted, crushed by the reality of your sin, and keenly aware, although not fully admitting, you will never live up to God's standard. Which is why he sent Jesus. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It may be that you feel subhuman. The Pinocchio worldview promises life, but delivers depression and anger and fear and anxiety and shame which makes us feel less, less than lovable. The glorious news of the gospel is that he has loved us perfectly, completely, totally, just as we are, says the, says the hymn. At some point, most people see the futility of trying to run faster and jump higher, morally speaking. Over time, most of us tire from our accusing conscience, which leads to, for some, depression, hopelessness, for some, self-sabotage, for some, a cry for mercy. And that's where Jesus enters. Do you see the irony? To think that my own moral decisions can bring me life is to act as if I am my own creator. That I somehow gave myself physical life and that I'm capable of doing the same spiritually. Folks, I didn't give myself physical life. 
and I will never give myself spiritual life. I received the blood that runs through my veins, and I received the blood of Christ shed on the cross. And therein is life, a daily illustration. The blood that, you know, we put Band-Aids on to stop, thankfully the blood of Christ never stops. I'll give you an example of the difference of receiving and living according to a grace-based conscience cleansing through faith versus a performance-based. Last Wednesday night, over 90 volunteers delivered over 400 new coats to neighbors in need in our community. We don't do this because we're trying to demonstrate our moral superiority. We don't do this because we want to demonstrate our worth or because we believe it'll make us feel more human. We do good works like this as a result of God's grace in our lives. We believe the words, we believe the ways of the one who gave his life for us and was then raised from the dead And he said, it's better to give than receive. And so we give. If you're giving to the ministries of Glowham Bible Church, you're making a difference in our community. You're tangibly demonstrating the life of Jesus. And we follow Jesus' example of freedom and power as we share our resources with those who don't have enough to care for themselves, just as Jesus came to care for us when we could not care for ourselves in our sinful state. He came to care for us when we couldn't care for ourselves. We care for others who are unable to care for themselves by sharing our resources. That's the way of freedom, Joy, power. Those that live like this feel increasingly human because they're increasingly connected and dependent upon their creator. Truth be told, there are countless possible application points to today's sermon in that receiving a cleansed conscience by faith in Jesus And his shed blood frees us to take risks in all areas of our lives. Because of who Jesus is, God in the flesh, and because of what Jesus has done, died on the cross, and because Jesus will return, it'll be my benediction today from the same passage, the author notes, the certain return of Jesus. We will see him physically. Because of who he is, what he's done, and what he will do, we can live with abandon. Pinocchio was tethered by his puppetry strings until his moral goodness earned him freedom. But through faith in Jesus, you have been set free to enjoy true freedom. John, I think it's chapter 8. If Christ has set you free, you are free indeed. Where could you live with greater abandon because of who Christ is? Letting go of anger? 
forgiving those who've sinned against you, sharing your faith with greater abandon, giving your resources away to help others, listening to, crying with those who cry. That takes real risk sometimes. Traveling to strengthen missionaries so that the kingdom of God may advance. Putting to death, Colossians 3, whatever belongs to the earthly nature, that takes great risk. Volunteering in roles that you haven't previously tried or exercised. We have lots of volunteer opportunities around here, kids ministry, student, adult ministry. How would you like to experience the presence and the power of God in the days ahead? Because of what Christ has done for us, is doing in us, in his certain return, take a risk. You are free because of who Christ is. Let me pray. Father, we ask for your goodness to us as a people. Set us free from performance-based mentalities. Give us great abandon to do, be, say, experience all that you have for your kids. In Jesus' name, amen. Jim and Ann Hess are down front. They'd love to pray for you. If you want prayer, um, let's stand. We'll close in song this morning.